Today's reading is Jonah chapter 1. The Lord's word came to Jonah, Amittai's son. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their evil has come to my attention. So Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship headed for Tarshish. He paid the fare and went aboard to go with them to Tarshish, away from the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, so that there was a great storm on the sea. The ship looked like it might be broken to pieces. The sailors were terrified, and each one cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to make it lighter. Now Jonah had gone down into the hold of the vessel to lie down and was deep in sleep. The ship's officer came and said to him, How can you possibly be sleeping so deeply? Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps the God will give us some thought so that we won't perish. Meanwhile, the sailors said to each other, Come on, let's cast lots so that we might learn who is to blame for this evil that's happening to us. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they said to him, Tell us, since you're the cause of this evil happening to us, what do you do? Where are you from? What's your country, and of what people are you? He said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were terrified and said to him, What have you done? The men knew that Jonah was fleeing from the Lord because he had told them. They said to him, What will we do about you so that the sea will become calm around us? The sea was continuing to rage. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm around you. I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. The men rowed to reach dry land, but they couldn't manage it because the sea continued to rage against them. So they called on the Lord, saying, Please, Lord, don't let us perish on account of this man's life, and don't blame us for innocent blood. You are the Lord. Whatever you want, you can do. Then they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. The men worshipped the Lord with a profound reverence. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made solemn promises. Meanwhile, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you're dismissed to King's Quest as the rest of us are seated. Uh, I'm going to pray and ask God to um, really make his spirit evident to us today, that we might be present to God and open to what it is that he wants to show to us. But I also woke up thinking about the many people whose lives and families have been touched by the flu. Uh, anybody in here that's gone through that recently? Uh, yeah, a lot of people. So, I mean, it's, it's very serious in our country right now. And I think that God cares about us reaching out to him and asking him for protection, for healing, for the people that are experiencing that. Because um, I know it's very debilitating and um, really taking a toll on our country as well, and our region. And even there has been deaths as a result of this too. So would you join me in, in prayer this morning? Father, I simply ask that you would send your spirit in all the fullness of your love and the life that you have promised to give to us. 
As has already been prayed, we are dependent people. We are people who need you, and oftentimes we don't realize how much we need you. But you still move toward us in your love and your grace and your mercy, and thank you for that. I ask for enablement today that I might represent you well, that people might, um, in encountering the Scripture, they might encounter you. And I also ask for those who are um, needing healing from the flu today in our church family that you would touch their bodies. Um, I think of my brother Steve Toller as he seeks to travel, that you would touch his body and heal him. And others who um, are experiencing all kinds of just lingering illness because of this. I ask for your healing upon them. For the protection for the rest of us who perhaps have not um, experienced it yet, I ask that you would protect us so that we might be able to continue to care for those around us and to love others, to be able to do the things you've called us to do. So we commit this time to you, in Jesus' name, amen. If you would, please open your Bibles to the text that was just read to us today from Jonah. It's page 774 in the blue Bibles that are underneath your seats, okay? So please open that. If you're new to grace, we're exploring the Jonah story together. And last week we looked together at the first three verses. And I calculated at the rate that we're going, based upon last week's pace, that we would be due to finish this sometime in May. And at that pace, I also realized that Jonah would not be the only one fleeing for his life at that pace. So we will pick up the pace quite a bit today and finish uh, chapter 1. My goal is to recover the Jonah story about, as being something more than just an entertaining children's story about a man who is swallowed by a whale. As I've already said, there's no whale in the story, and the great fish that does appear, and it only occurs in three verses, so it's really not the central focus of the story. But rather, what I've suggested to you is that it's a story about a man of faith who has a problem with God. And right away, that normalizes that for those of us who perhaps call ourselves followers of God, and yet find ourselves at times disappointed with God, feeling distant from God, Uh, perhaps even at some point in our lives not wanting anything to do with God at all, and yet feeling sometimes guilty about that or ashamed of that and feeling like something's wrong with us. And so the Jonah story normalizes that, that this is something that God recognizes does happen to people of faith. We saw last week Jonah fleeing from God's command in verse 2. And the question was why. Why does Jonah flee from God? Why does a prophet of God flee from God Well, he runs not because of unbelief, but because of a certain belief that he has about God, specifically that God is merciful. And he suspects that God might be merciful to Nineveh, the most brutal uh, nation known to humankind in that period. He suspects that God might show mercy to them when they should experience the sword of justice for their brutality and the wickedness that they have shown. They had wiped out the ten, ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. So I ended last Sunday with a quote from Barbara Brown Taylor that's behind me, in which she says, the problem is many of the people in need of saving are in churches, and at least part of what they need saving from is the idea that God sees the world the same way they do. In the Jonah story, God does not see the world the same way that Jonah does. And I'd like to return to the story this morning to see how it might challenge our own view of God and how we tend to see people around us in the way that things should work. And the question I'm raising is this, is it possible, 
Is it possible that the God that we say we believe in, that we worship, that we trust to hear and to answer our prayers might be different than the God who is revealed in the Jonah story? And if so, who makes the adjustment? So I left off last week with God giving Jonah a command to go to the most brutal empire in the world, the nation of Assyria, and to deliver a message from Israel's God. And what made this so unique was that here was a prophet of God not just being told to give a message, but to go to a place. And I suggested that it is analogous to a command to go to the heart of Nazi Germany in 1943 at the height of World War II, to go to Berlin and to go to the headquarters of the SS and to stand on the steps and to say that the Third Reich is doomed. Who in their mind would do that and not know that that was a death sentence? If you know anything about the brutality of Assyria, which I described to you last week, Jonah knew that that was a death sentence. So Jonah runs the opposite direction from God. So I want to pick up the story in verse 4 where we left off last week where Jonah's in the ship and now it's Yahweh's turn to act. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so the ship threatened to break up. God stirs up a storm to stop Jonah from fleeing and this display of power gets the sailors' attention and they call out to every possible God they can think of. Verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So they throw the cargo into the sea as a possible way to lighten the ship. But it's also possible that this was a sacrifice to the sea. And some of our translations, we don't see that in there because in the Hebrew it says it was to lighten the ship lighten the sea of the weight of the ship. So it's as if they're doing the sea a favor because they believe the sea was, was inhabited by gods, and so therefore they were doing the sea a favor by lightening the ship so the ship doesn't have burden the sea, and therefore the sea might calm down. And whereas Jonah in this crisis, the end of verse 5, he's down. It says he went down. And this follows verse 3 where Jonah had gone down to Joppa and he went down again. The word is used there in Hebrew again. And now Jonah goes down again into the ship. And so the author is giving a very, very specific wordplay to us to notice. Where's the man of God? He's gone down, 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 and now he's fast asleep. And the author's style is deliberate because Jonah's sleep is more than just a physical sleep. What he's pointing to stylistically is that it reflects his internal disposition toward God. Jonah has run away, he's gone down, and now he's fallen into a deep slumber. That's reflecting, here's this guy's posture toward God. I think it's also worth noting to pause just for a moment to realize that his disobedience has consequences on others around him. His disobedience has consequences on others around him. You see, when you look at morality in our culture, it tends to be viewed as individual and private. As long as I don't hurt anyone, as long as we're consenting, then it's okay, right? That's our culture's view of morality. Yet the Bible reveals that that is very naive and that's very simplistic. Because the hard postures that we cultivate, whether it's bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness, cynicism, And the actions that we choose do affect others. 
eventually they will spill out on others around us. And so Jonah doesn't simply make a private or individual decision. His disobedience has consequences, not only for him, but also for the people who are around him. Verse 6, So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. If you remember at the very beginning of this, when I introduced it, if you were here, I talked about the, the author's style being one of satire, exaggeration, and irony. And here we see some of this irony coming out because here is a pagan, polytheistic captain attempting to rouse the man of God to get him to pray. And so the author's wanting us to see the irony in this, in this scene here. He's saying, maybe your God will notice so that we won't perish. And that's a key idea that begins to emerge from this text is the idea of a God who notices so that people will not perish. A beautiful, beautiful thing that, we're in, that he wants us to see. Does Jonah's God notice them? Absolutely. That's why they're in the storm. And Jonah's only response is silence in verse 7. So, because of his silence, they decide that they'll do the ancient equivalent of rolling the dice to see who's brought this on them. Who's responsible for this calamity? They believe that what they were experiencing, the evil that they were experiencing, was a result of somebody's action, and they need to find out who it was. And the lot points to Jonah in verse 7. And as the storm keeps pounding them, they pound Jonah with questions. Verse 8, they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Now, kind of picture this in your mind. The, the storm is just rocking the ship. And these guys are interrogating, peppering Jonah, waking him out of this deep slum, slumber and, and peppering him with these questions. And one of the questions, I, I, you know, the minute I started beginning to study this text, the one that stood out is, what is your occupation? It's like, you're in a storm and you want to get this person's resume? I mean, like, what in the world are you doing? And it always struck me like, that is an odd question. But when you think about it more, than essentially what this is attempting to say, what they're attempting to say or ask Jonah is this. What is it that causes you to be on this ship? Assuming that you would go on a ship because of some work that you, ha- that you did or you needed to do, they were wondering, what is it that caused you to be on our ship? And evidently he tells them that he's running from his God and he names the personal name of God the Lord. Verse 9, he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. But look at verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? The end of that, that uh, verse, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So Jonah tells them that he's fleeing from the Lord. He names his personal name Yahweh. That's the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Names that this is his God that he's fleeing from, and that causes them to say, to be exceedingly afraid in verse 10. And then he identifies this Lord in more detail in verse 9. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So he tells them, he identifies this Lord as the one who made the sea and the dry land. I worship Yahweh, Jonah says, who has power over the sea, and I'm running from him, and I'm in your ship. Yeah, it's intended to be funny. Hebrew funny. 
And the, the word that he uses there, worship, can also be translated as fear. And in, wisdom, in the wisdom literature of the Bible, it conveys deep reverence or healthy fear born out of respect. So in a sense, Jonah is saying to these sailors, I fear, I have this healthy respect for Yahweh, the one who made the sea and who has kicked up this storm. And those sailors are looking at him and saying, are you kidding me? You're saying you fear him and yet you're running from him? And so they recognize his religious hypocrisy and they'll have nothing to do with it. Now, just to pause here again and to remind you, as I've said in previous weeks, that the Jonah story is intended to function like a mirror. The author uses satire, exaggeration, irony to pull us in to identify with the characters that are in the story so that then he might hold up a mirror to us and to ask us the question, do you see any of Jonah in yourself? Is there any of Jonah in you? And I'm suggesting to you that this is what I'm calling a mirror moment. Because Jonah's words that we've just seen, what he confesses, is a creedal statement that was used in Israel's worship. Psalm 95.5, The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. That phrase is used in other places in the Old Testament. So the writer of Jonah is picking up this creedal statement of Israel's worship. And so the, the, the Jewish readers who would have read this would have recognized that this was part of Israel's creed. And Jonah is saying what is the equivalent of what is found as the first line in the Apostles' Creed, which occurred in the 4th century A.D. It has nothing to do with Jonah, but we picked it up in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. And so what is going on right here that the author wants us to recognize is that Jonah is running away from God while simultaneously confessing, I believe. And so the author pulls us in by showing the hypocrisy of a man who claims to believe all the right things about God while simultaneously running from God. And what's so interesting is the author wants to catch us feeling superior or having the sense of a condescending posture toward Jonah. And he wants to catch us in that moment to hold up a mirror to us and to ask us, so you've never had a contradiction between what you say you believe and the way you act? You've never confessed that God is love and yet demean someone with cynicism, with labeling, dismissing, with resentment, the things that our hearts can produce toward people. Further irony that is found in here that the author points out to us is that the people outside the people of God are often able to see the deep contradiction and hypocrisy between what God's people confess and how they behave. So is Jonah an imperfect witness to the God he says he believes in? Absolutely, right? Yes. But here's the second question. Is God limited by that? Is God limited by that? I'll hold on to that question, all right? Because that becomes a very crucial question. Is God limited by that? Because the answer is no. 
The answer is no. In verses 11 and 12, the sailors ask, what should we do? And Jonah knows the gig is up. He's backed into the corner. And in verse 12, he admits that he's the guilty one. The storm is his fault. That, that God, this is God's doing because of what he's done. Look at um, verse 12. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, I want you to notice here again, this picks up the sacrifice motif that was found in verse 5. The idea of the sacrifice to the sea, to lighten the sea of the weight of the ship, and now we find the sacrifice motif once again that is being offered here in verse 12. Here, Jonah offers himself as a sacrifice. But why? Some have suggested that he's offering himself as a sacrifice for the sailors, but I don't think that's I don't think that's the case here because Jonah remains unrepentant toward God. So there's no reason he would do this. But I think the better answer is that this is a sacrifice to God. It's a sacrifice to God. Jonah admits that he's guilty, but he won't repent. He admits that he's guilty, but he won't repent. So what he's doing here is he will throw the ball back into God's court. In this action, he throws the ball back into God's court to see if God will act justly. Because after all, if someone does something evil, they should pay, right? Whether it's Jonah or whether it's Nineveh. And so he wants to force God's hand to get God to admit that this is a way the world should work. Toward him and toward Nineveh. What will God do now? And God shows mercy. He refuses to follow Jonah's lead. He exercises justice. And he shows mercy. Instead of justice, he shows mercy. Verse 13. Look down at the text with me. The sailors seem to realize that God is not demanding Jonah's death, and so they try to row hard to get back to dry land, the text says, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. That's a great word, tempestuous. The word of the day, right there. So they try to save him. Again, more irony. Here are the pagan sailors trying to save the man of God. In verse 14, therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and let and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they pray to God aloud so that Jonah hears that he's responsible for what they're about ready to do. And when they use the language of innocent blood, I don't think that it's suggesting that they think that Jonah is innocent, but rather what they're saying to God is, if we make a mistake, don't hold us responsible. Verse 15, they throw Jonah overboard. He becomes a sacrifice to the sea and to his God, and the waters become calm. And what's interesting is the sailors then become part of a chain of events that ends up causing hundreds of thousands of people in Nineveh to turn to Israel's God. Again, irony. And then with verse 16, we end. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The men feared the Lord exceedingly. Who says he fears Yahweh? Jonah. Who actually fears Yahweh? The pagan 
polytheistic sailors. Again, irony. So I just want to finish with, by returning to this Barbara Brown Taylor quote that I started with this morning, and I want to ask the question, how might this story challenge the way that we view God? Because the way that we view God affects the way that we live. And I want to suggest two things to you. First, that God works through imperfect people. God works through imperfect people. And what the story is saying is that if God can work through Jonah, how much more those who are responsive to God? If God can work through Jonah, how much more those who are responsive to God? So as we see Jonah's disobedience, it's not to be viewed as a license for us to do whatever we want and then to say, but God can work through anyone. He can work through imperfect people, so therefore it doesn't matter what I do. That's not the case because as we've seen already, our actions do affect others around us. But as I've said, as I said last week, or I suggested to you last week, that God's commands are invitations They're to be seen as invitations for us to trust God. And they're invitations to partner with him and his desire to bring his love and his mercy and his grace into the lives of people around us. And so God does work through imperfect people, but he also is giving us an invitation to join him, to trust him, to respond to what he's calling us to do. The second thing I want to suggest to you is this. God is totally free to shower mercy and grace on whomever he will. God is totally free to shower mercy and grace on whomever he will. He does that towards the sailors. And when we look at the sailors, we realize that God is not coerced by human goodness, by piety, by repentance. That is not what causes us to have a relationship with God or to experience his grace and mercy. I think one of the most important things we could see here is that God does not show mercy and grace to us because we get our act together. If there's any because that involves mercy and grace, then it's not mercy and grace, right? Because mercy is God withholding what we deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. And in both of those, it has nothing to do with our trying to to be better people. And that's good news. With regard to Jonah and the mercy and grace of God, he persists in seeking out Jonah so that Jonah will come to his senses. God will not give up on Jonah, and he will not give up on Nineveh, and he will not give up on me, or you, or us. And that's made very clear in the incarnation of Jesus, lest you think, well, is that just Jonah? No, it's in the incarnation of Jesus. In God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ, we see in bold, bold words to us and actions toward us that God is for us so much that he came to be with us. God is for us so much that he came to be with us to be with us in the person of Christ so that we might share in the life of God. That we might share in the life of God. Peter says it this way, that we might be partakers of the divine nature. Wow. Let that sink in. 
Let that sink in. No matter how tired you are from your work this week, no matter what you've gone through this week, God holds out to you his agenda for you, that he is for you so much that he has sent Jesus into the world so that you and I and we might become partakers of the divine nature through Christ. That when you breathe your last and when you retire, when you have no more work to do in this world, and when you, when you finally end up in the new creation, what God's agenda has been from the minute you breathed your first breath to the time you breathe your last breath is to bring you into the life of God so that you might become, you might share in His divine nature through Christ. Is that mind-blowing? Is that just me? I can't wrap my head around that. That's incredible. That is incredible. That is how God is for us. And if you've not received the life of God by placing your trust in Jesus Christ alone and saying, wow, if what that guy is saying is true, I want that. And that God's mercy and grace comes to us freely as a gift because he loves us. It's not because i got to go to church every week. It's not because i got to read the Bible first. It's not because i got to clean up my mouth or quit some you know, habit that I have or whatever. But it's simply the mercy and grace of God that comes and has been demonstrated and embodied in the person of Jesus. I want that. I'll take that. And it's, it almost seems too good to be true. And that's what God's love is like. It just seems too good to be true. If you've never encountered that, and maybe you've just believed things like Jonah, you've believed all the right things, but you've never really experienced the life of God, I invite you to just tell God that's what you want. And he'll give it to you. Amen.